And the rest of you guys can turn to Acts chapter 14. That's where we'll be this morning. I want to um, start out by uh, acknowledging. So last week, um, you guys honored us for Pastor Appreciation Month. And we want to say thank you for making us feel um, very loved, very appreciated. And and I just wanted to, as I thought about it, I thought, you know, our greatest appreciation comes from being able to faithfully proclaim the Word of God to you week in and week out. And so this morning, um, you know, it's just neat to think that this weekend, Pastor Chad on Saturday went and preached the gospel to a men's breakfast in Lapine, but a big group got together. Uh, Pastor Terry is preaching the gospel at CBC this morning. That's where he is. So he's over there uh, filling in and helping them out. Pastor David is in Lapine preaching at the door at Lapine this morning. And I get to be here preaching the gospel to you this morning. And, and it was just kind of overjoyed my heart to think that uh, we, we have four guys th- th- this weekend that are out laboring and getting to do this. And so we appreciate the opportunity. It, it's, you know, the fact that people keep showing up and, and um, we get to do this is astounding to us. And, and so we're just giving credit where credit's due. Thank God for all that he's done, all that he um, continues to do and all that he will do in the months and years to come. So this morning, like I said, we're in Acts chapter 14. We've been continuing to track Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey as they go from town to town preaching the good news of a God who loves people so much that he sent his son on behalf of them to provide a way for them to enter into relationship with him. Verse 7 ends our last section by telling us that Paul and Barnabas left Iconium and headed to Lystra and Derbe, where they continued to meet people and tell them the good news of a Savior. And so that's where we pick up today in verse 8, which says, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And the crowds saw what Paul had done. They lifted their voices, saying in Lycoanian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with good or with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. So that is the passage we're going to be looking at this morning. Verse 8 tells us that when they got to Lystra... It says there was a man sitting there who couldn't use his feet. He was crippled from birth, and he'd never walk. 
And it's always good to kind of try to, and I know this sounds bad, but put yourself in the shoes of a guy like this. Um, I didn't mean that to be punny, but literally think about what it's like to be this man, crippled from birth, never taken a step in his life, continually having to rely on other people just to go places, to eat, to do the basic things in life. He probably always felt like a burden, like a nuisance, and like the world would just be a better place without him. Not to mention the stigma that gets attached to people with disability by others. People wrongly assume that disability means that God has cursed them or doesn't like them very much, and that's why they're in the condition they're in. Um, if, you're, if you're familiar with John chapter 9, the disciples, when they saw this blind man from birth, they asked Jesus, you know, who sinned? Was it this guy that sinned or was it his parents that sinned that he was born this way? And Jesus corrected them and said, neither of those things is true. Now, if that were true, by the way, guess what I would be right now? <laughs> I'd be blind and lame, and you know, because if we if we got what we deserved, we'd all be disabled. It's no wonder that this man listened so intently to Paul as he spoke about a Savior who loved him and who died for him, so that he could have life and and be made whole and have a future where disability doesn't exist. You can almost picture the hope in his face as Paul preaches to him. Verse 9 says, He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, saw that he had faith to be healed and made well. And, and I think, does, that, does God's word have that effect on you when you hear it preached? Are you receiving it with faith? Do you expect that something is going to happen? Do you believe in God's power to change you through his word and his spirit? I wish I could, you know, I could look out there and, and see that on everybody's faces every time somebody's preaching because this is the truth of God's Word. There's an anticipation we should have that when God's Word is preached, change will occur. So I hope you come here expectant, not to hear from us, but to hear from God. To have His Word just kind of wash over you like a tidal wave of grace every week. Because we need, we need that. And hopefully this is a place where you're renewed and energized by hearing the gospel week after week after week. I know we sound like a broken record sometimes, but I won't apologize for that because that's what we need. We recently met with a, a man who was just overwhelmed uh, with guilt and with anxiety over some of the choices he'd recently made. And he, he wanted to meet with us because he'd repented from, from those things, but he still felt this overwhelming shame and guilt. So he wanted to get together with us and talk. When we met with him, we asked him if he had trusted Jesus to be his Lord and Savior, and if he had placed his faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And he said, yes, I've done that. I know I've done that. And I wish you could have seen the look on his face when we were able to tell him, if that is true, then your sins are forgiven. You're washed. You're clean. Jesus has taken the guilt and the shame Upon himself, it's nailed to the cross, and you bear it no more. It was literally like a visible weight lifted off of this man. You could see it. And this is what we have in Christ. It's actually called absolution. We don't, we don't talk about that very much. That sounds, that sounds Lutheran or Catholic. <laughs> that's okay. But that's what it is. You can be absolutely certain that if you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you are free in him. And that's why you need to hear the truth of God's word preached to you as often as possible. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to remind ourselves of the truth of that. Because if you're like me, I forget what happened yesterday, the day before, the week before. I'm a forgetter. 
And that's why we even, you know, we set the table so often here so we can remember what Christ has done for us. It's life to our bones and it's breath for our soul to remember these things. Paul was saying something that this man had never heard before, something he was desperate for, and Paul could see it written all over his face. And so this is why he says in verse 10 in a loud voice, stand up right on your feet. And he sprang up and he began walking. It's a beautiful thing to think of. This is like an undeniable miracle. This isn't one of those things where, you know, like somebody lengthens somebody else's leg or like, you know, I came in here this morning and one arm was longer than the other. And whoa, look what just happened. Did you guys see, you want to see it again? Yeah, it's like, it's not, you know, it's not that kind of miracle. This is, this guy had never walked before and he didn't like kind of like struggle like a newborn calf to get up. It says he sprang to his feet. I like that. He starts walking like he's been doing it all his life. From the moment that Paul said, get up, and, and, and he jumped in the air, his muscles formed, and he landed on his feet and started walking. That's crazy. He was carried in on a stretcher that day, and I just picture him like moon walking out, which I know he didn't do that, but, but it makes it kind of cool to think of. That's a miracle. That's something only God can do. And the crowd knew it, but unfortunately, they pointed the credit in absolutely the wrong place. Verse 11 says, And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycoanian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. They were right to credit God. They were way off in which God got the credit. And like most of the towns that Paul and Barnabas had visited, it doesn't say anything about a synagogue in this town. There's a good chance that these guys didn't have any of the, the history that a lot of these other towns had as far as the God of the Bible is concerned. So the, the miracles that Paul and Barnabas did were supposed to point people to the one true God, but this was a God that they weren't familiar with. And so they mistakenly pointed their worship to Paul and Barnabas. And I like that Luke tells us that, that they spoke this in their own native language. So they, it indicates that Paul and Barnabas didn't know what they were saying. So they hear this, you know, they do this miracle and they see this excitement and the people are like, you know, and Paul's going, man, this is, check this out. This is great. This isn't like the other towns. These guys are receiving what we had to do and they're, they're excited. They're praising God. You know, I can picture Barnabas going, you know, my Lycoanian is not very good, but I thought I heard something about Zeus and Hermes. Did you, you know, Zeus and Hermes, by the way, are also known as Jupiter and Mercury. They were Greek lowercase gods that the people of Lystra worshiped. So in verse 12, it says that, well, by the way, Zeus was the, the, the main god and Hermes was the spokesperson for God. And so they assumed uh, one was one and one was the other. So it says in verse 12, Barnabas, they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates. They would put these garlands around the ox, oxen as they would walk them up to do the sacrifices he put uh, they, they, uh, to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles uh, heard of this, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd. Um, that whole thing kind of escalated quickly. I mean, it was one of those where, you know, this is going great. And now all of a sudden they realize this is not going great at all. This is like the worst thing that possibly could have happened. They go from trying to get them to worship the one true God to trying to stop them from worshiping them, you know, Paul and Barnabas themselves. And they communicate this by the tearing of their garments that was a kind of a universal way of expressing grief, mourning, loss, or in this case, straight up blasphemy. Uh, we don't tear our garments anymore. Now we use emojis to express everything we're feeling. <laughs> they didn't have those then. so. But I, I, there's one that comes to mind that they would have probably posted like, oh, no, this isn't good. I'm not going to say which one it is. Uh, 
I always picture, I don't know why I think of this stuff, and I'm sorry, but you guys know me by now, but I just picture these guys, you know, always, you know, ripping their garments all the time when something goes wrong and, you know, going home and, like, throwing their shirt in the mending pile, and their wife's like, what, bad day at the office, hon? It's like, <laughs> yeah, sorry, they confused us for Greek gods again, you know, just <laughs> constantly mending shirts, you know. I, I kind of wonder if they went around with, like, you know, like it was all sewn back together again, you know, ah, tear it again. Anyway, Sorry. Something tells me these guys ended up with a lot of torn shirts, though, on their missions trips. Uh, I'm glad we don't do that today because we'd all be walking around with the same thing. So Paul and Barnabas see the townspeople bringing out oxen and garland to offer sacrifices. They rush into the crowd. In verse 15, they say, men, why are you doing these things? We also are, are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Paul challenges what they're doing by by telling them that we're we're men. We're just like you guys. We're not gods to be worshipped. We're here to tell you about a God who is worthy to be worshipped. And notice where Paul goes next. He He isn't talking to a group of Jews this time, so he can't assume that they have all the backstory. They have a different worldview, a different background. So he has to adapt what he tells them. He has to contextualize his message to this group that he's talking to. And we need to learn from that. Uh, we live in a postmodern, I would say a post-Christian society now where a lot of people don't know the Bible like we might have grown up knowing the Bible. They don't have a context for the, for the big story of God. So when we're talking to people, we kind of have to keep that in mind. Don't assume they know all of these things that we should assume that they would know. They, they probably don't, which is sad, but true. So Paul goes all the way back to the beginning and tells them about a living God who's different than their not-so-living gods, or as he calls them, vain things. That's pretty harsh, by the way. You know, he points that they most likely would have had these statues in their temples of, of these, these lowercase gods of Hermes and Zeus and you know, Hercules and whoever else. And he says these, these are worthless gods, useless gods. They can't save you. They can't help you. They can't do anything for you. By the way, we have those too. We have those little idols in our lives that we, not not statues, most likely, but but we have them. They just look different than these. Paul wants them to know that this living God is the one who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything that's in them. That means everything that exists. This God made, and I love what he says in verse sixteen. He wants them to know that they matter to the one true God. Even if they aren't familiar with, the, with, even if they aren't familiar with him, he is completely familiar with him. He, he knows them intimately. In verse 16, it says, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. Men's natural d- default, his natural tendency is to walk in his own way. That's what comes normal to us. We, uh, we're generally turned away from God and turned into self. But God doesn't want us to walk in our own way anymore. He wants us to know him and to follow him. And Paul says that he didn't leave himself without witness. Even though you, you don't know who he is, he didn't leave himself without witness. He basically has been here the whole time. He's been hiding in plain sight. His fingerprints are on everything if you just look around and pay attention. I like this quote, the, the great Isaac Newton who's you know, one of the most intelligent people that's ever lived, once said this, In the absence of any other proof, the thumb 
alone would convince me of God's existence. <laughs> I just love that. And that, I mean, isn't that true? I mean, just stare at your thumb for a while and think this thing is awesome. And, and it goes way beyond that. That's just the thumb. Everything that, that we're made up of screams out that there's a creator God who made everything. It should be obvious. We don't have to look very hard to find God. He continually shows himself to his creation through all the good things we have to enjoy. Have you enjoyed the cycles of rain that come and the, and the, the fruitful seasons that come? They're gifts from him. Has your heart been satisfied with food and gladness? Also from God. God created you with senses like taste buds. I love taste buds. <laughs> They're fantastic, right? I mean, think about that. What a gift from God that we have taste buds and can taste all these different wonderful things. We have eyes to, to look out and see everything that God has made and just be in wonder and awe of who he is. I, I mean, I, I, the, the snow's back on the mountains, guys. I just I drive by there and I almost drive off the road every time because I'm just like, it's, it just screams out a creative God. He's given us a nose to smell. I, there's something about fall. You go outside in the fall when it's cool and crisp, and all these memories flood back into your mind of childhood and football and whatever you know, whatever it happens to be. But this, the sense of smell that God has given us, and He's given us ears to hear the gospel. He's given us ears to hear about a God that loves you and that wants relationship with you. This God is the creator of everything, and He's also the controller of everything. There are no other gods before him. There is no need for any other so-called gods. They're worthless. Even though Paul gives it his best attempt, verse 18 says, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to him. They still, they were like, no, we don't care. We don't, you know, whatever. We're still going to worship you guys is what they were thinking. But then we read verse 19, which completely baffles me. One minute, They're ready to bow down to them and worship them as gods. And the very next minute, we read this. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Talk about things escalating quickly. This is like, how did this happen? How is this possible? We want to worship you. Wait, no, we want to kill you. I mean... How much time went by between those two thoughts? It doesn't really get any more extreme than that. They stone Paul and they drag him out of the city. It says, supposing he was dead. Um, stoning was, was not something people survived. They were right to suppose he was dead. In truth, he might have actually died. We're not told. Uh, Luke's a doctor. He, he, he could have mentioned that if, if it were true. But, but either way, death is no match for our God. He proved that when Jesus got out of the tomb. Verse 20 says, but when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby, which again blows my mind because it's like it doesn't indicate that Paul gets up and goes to seek immediate medical attention, which I think I would want to do uh, or just go home. You know, it's like he got up and he just went home and he went home and he stayed there for a long time. That's what my story would have said, <laughs> but he doesn't. He gets up and he goes right back into that town. And then the next day, he starts a 60-mile journey to the next town. 60 miles. I, I wouldn't have driven 60 miles at that point. <laughs> it, just, it just goes to tell you, not, not that Paul was amazing, but that our God is amazing. Our God is unstoppable. And you can't, you can't 
you can't kill this message. You can't kill his messengers. You can't stop what God is doing. So that's the passage that we, we um, had to look at today. And I want to just look at a few takeaways from this passage. And so here's the, the big item tickets, the big ticket items, if, you, if you're a note taker. You know, they're, they're always weird, but here they go. First one is just to simply give credit where credit is due. It's funny how that's come up like three times already this morning. Second one is this. We are people with the same nature. The third one is that the world is a fickle mistress. Yeah. And the last one is to live is Christ. So the first thing we're going to look at is the fact that we must always give credit where credit is due. The apostles performed an amazing miracle. And the crowd wanted to give them credit for it. And they could have easily taken a little of the glory for themselves, right? But the mere thought of that, the mere thought of even taking a little, caused them to go out and tear their clothes because they wouldn't steal worship that belonged to their God. And that's quite a contrast from what we see often today in, in, in rock star type churches or, or faith healer type churches. They seem more than happy to, to have the spotlight right on them. Sorry. It, it really angers me that, that, that they would want to take any of God's glory or any of his fame. Hopefully, we as your pastors always give credit where credit is due. Ironically, this was the passage we were supposed to be in last week for Pastor Appreciation Day. <laughs> and we just thought that wouldn't, that wouldn't go over very well. So we went ahead and did a pastor panel instead because that would have been kind of funny. It's like, which one of you is Hermes? Which one of you is Zeus? David would be Hercules because he has the cool hair, you know. Yeah, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have really come together right. Every good thing about us, every talent we have is a gift from God. And it's meant to reflect back to him. So the question is, are you a glory receptor or are you a glory reflector? There's a big difference between the two. And I hope that each one of us learns to become a glory reflector. Because there's nothing good in me. The only good thing about me is Christ. And I know that. And for me to, to, to believe otherwise, even for a minute, would be a lie. I know we all want to be liked and appreciated and validated and even adored. But I want you to know where, where, where you can find that where it matters the most. And it's in our relationship with, with our Father. I've learned that over the years. I used to look for it with my, I'm sorry, I'll get emotional. I was hoping this wouldn't be one of those days, but it's always one of those days. You know, I used to, I used to look for it with my own earthly dad. I wanted that validation from him. I couldn't watch, uh, you know, uh, what's the baseball movie? If you build it, they will come. Field of Dreams. I couldn't watch Field of Dreams without just bawling like a baby, which I know that's no surprise to you guys. But, at, you know, at the end when, when his dad wants to have a catch with him, you know, play catch, and it was just like, Whoa! you know, every time. And, and, and I, I, I yearned for that. And then it was my wife that I needed. I wanted my wife to complete me. And she's done a great job of loving me. But I've gotten to the point now where, you know what? I, I have the, the approval of my heavenly father. Not because of me, but because of his son's righteousness over me. And I don't long for this from my dad anymore. I still want a relationship with my dad, but I don't, I don't need it. And my wife loves me and I appreciate that, but it doesn't complete me. I, I've gotten to where I don't need that from them. I have it from God. The God who, who, he knows the good, the bad, and the ugly. And he still wants me, baffles me. But when you have that, well, you don't need it from anybody else. 
Uh, there's a great little book written by Tim Keller, and I'll, I'll blow it because I didn't write it down, but it's called The, the Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And I, some of you are going, wow, my, my spouse is free right now. But it doesn't mean like <laughs> that kind of thing. It, it's talking about, it's a quote that he, that he kind of took from, from C.S. Lewis that says, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. And when we can get to that point where we just kind of stop worrying about what other people think of us or what even we think of ourselves and only what God thinks of us because he's made it clear. He sent his son to die for me. If he thinks that much of me, what else do I want? What else could I possibly need? Okay, I don't even know where I went on my notes here. So I'm just going to jump to the second one there. The second one is that we are people with the same nature. When the people tried to worship Paul and Barnabas, Paul quickly explains that they all have the same nature, which could also be translated the same passions or the same affections. So in other words, what he's saying is that we're all sinners. Every one of us is a sinner in need of a Savior. There's no reason you should bow to us. We're just like you. But somehow people are more willing to bow to other people than they are to Jesus. I don't know if you've noticed that, but... That makes more sense to us somehow. We always look to other things to worship in the place of God. John Calvin one time said that the human heart is an idol factory. <laughs> That's kind of, that sounds bad, right? Just, we just churn them out one after the other, one after the other, one after the other, looking for something to worship in place of God. And humans seem to have an easy time elevating other humans to this godlike status. The Jews were, you, you know, if you think back to the Old Testament, God was their king. God dwelt in their midst. And what did they want? Well, we want a human king. We don't want God. We want a human king. Give us a king. That's like crazy. It's like you've got the best king there is. Now we want a human king. But we do that today constantly with athletes, musicians, and actors, and politicians, and you know, rich people, whatever it is. We're always looking to elevate a human to the place that God deserves. They have the same nature as us. They need Jesus just like we do. Sometimes it seems more, but it's not true. The truth is that every one of us was created to worship. It's hardwired into us because we have the imprint of God stamped onto our souls. The problem is our worship is broken. So we worship the wrong things. We, we can never look to people to be our functional saviors. They will let us down every time. We can only look to the one who is actually capable of saving our souls. He will never let us down. So if you do find somebody out there who's, you know, has this, um, whatever it is in their character or their qualities that makes you think, oh, I want to elevate that person, refer back to the first point. Give credit where credit is due. If you see something good in me, it's not me. If you see a basketball that's able to jump five feet in the air and, and you know, that, who, where did that come from? Where did that ability originate? The creator, the living God who made everything. Whatever it is, whatever you see in a person, even if they're not a Christian, you know, there's, there's, there's non-Christian artists out there who paint and, and their, their ability still glorifies God, even though that's the last thing they would want it to do. It still glorifies their creator. So regardless of who this person is, whatever they've got going on them, anything good in humanity is a result of God, not us. So the next one is that the world is a fickle mistress. Uh, one moment the crowd wants to venerate and the next minute they want to obliterate. It, it's crazy to see the contrast. Uh, a famous, uh, I won't say he's famous, 
Ulysses Everett McGill, who's a character in a movie, once said, it's a fool that looks for logic in the chambers of the human heart. And that's true. You won't find it. A crowd can be won over to a new viewpoint in an instant. Did you see that? I mean, it didn't take any time at all. They went from one extreme to the other. And that's why we need the Word of God to be our standard of truth. Because according to Isaiah 40 and verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. It will not change. That's what we can stand on. We've watched our nation change their minds about lots of things in the last decade or two. It's kind of crazy to see. You know what that means? We're going to see them change their minds again. So, so what, what, what things are right now used to be wrong and what things are wrong now used to be right. And you know what? They'll probably change places again. And we'll just watch this merry-go-round of morality and whatever you want to call it. There's no consistency or logic about it. There's times when I just think people have lost their ever-living minds. And I don't know what, to, what to even make of it. How can you have a video clip of somebody saying one thing and then five years later saying the exact opposite thing like they never even said that thing? It's like, we have the technology to see this stuff now, you guys. It's weird. Didn't mean to go there. It really shouldn't surprise us that the world is so fickle. But I see Christians who are up in arms all the time because the world are not acting like Christians. And I think, is that even a reasonable expectation? Should we expect Christian behavior to come from a non-Christian? No. The gospel is the only thing that I know of that can change a human heart. It's what changed my heart. The stuff that I used to think was absolutely fine to do, I'm completely against now. And I've not wavered in that conviction because I base it upon the Word of God. When God places, when, when, he, when you're born from above and God places a spirit in you, and he writes his law on your heart, things change. That's the only thing I know of that can change a human heart. I have new desires and new convictions that weren't there before, and it's a result of God. So don't be surprised when the world is fickle. They will be. We should not be because we have something to stand on that does not change. The last one is that we see this in Paul, and that's to live as Christ. In some ways, that was Paul's mantra. To live as Christ and to die as gain. The message of Christ can produce faith or it can produce a fight. We see that in our passage today. The world will oppose our message, and we shouldn't be surprised by that. If you if you kind of realize what took place in this passage, the people from Iconium that came down, that was like a 20-mile walk. That's a long ways to come down to oppose something. The people from Antioch traveled 100 miles to, to come and oppose this thing. It's like that's how opposed sometimes people will be to the message of Christ, and it shouldn't surprise us. But it doesn't mean we throw in the towel and give up. Paul got beaten to a, to within you know within an inch of his life. He was he was probably just mostly dead. But I know you got to have one in there. But without any hesitation. He gets right back up into the game. He goes. He gets right back on the field and, and, and doesn't, like he didn't even miss a beat. Because to him, to live was Christ and to die was gain. And I don't think any of us will ever go through anything remotely similar to what Paul went through. You can jump over to, you know, Corinthians and look at his list of like, you know, five times this happened and 20 times this happened and a bunch of times this happened and I was shipwrecked and I was stoned. And it's like, what didn't Paul go through? But his conclusion was, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He wasn't talking about bungee jumping, you know. He was talking about going through these things 
Stoning, I can do that through Christ who strengthens me. Shipwrecked, I can do that through Christ who strengthens me. Cold, naked, hungry, I can do that through Christ who strengthens me. Those are the things he was talking about, right? We'll probably never go through what Paul went through, but if you want to follow Christ faithfully and you want to lead others to follow him faithfully too, guess what you can expect? Opposition, persecution, cost. It will cost you something. Are you willing to suffer a little for the one who suffered for you? Are you willing to take some risks for his name? Are you willing to sacrifice so that others can come into the kingdom of God? I hope that's your mindset. I hope that, like Paul, you would say, to live is Christ, to die is gain. While I'm here, my life is all about him. And when when my time is up and I get to go home, that's when the real gain happens. You know, I think we get it upside down sometimes, and we think that this is the prize. This place stinks. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is not, you know, I mean, apart from his common grace that, that kind of we see all the time. And, and, and again, as Christians, we have even more because we have an abundance of his, of his, of his presence. But this place is not home. This is not, this place isn't worth, you know, hanging around in any longer than we have to. So let's get the work done so we can go home. <laughs> all right. All right. Yeah, I've told you guys that when I study a passage, I always like to try to find who I am in, in the passage. And I always first place myself in the hero seat. That's just, you know, that's where you want to be. I'm Paul. I'm the guy that gets knocked down and I walk back into town. Is that all you got? You know, it's like, that's who I want to be at first, but, but I know that's not who I am. So then I immediately went to the lame guy and think, okay, well, that's, that's obvious. You know, this guy's helpless, hopeless, you know, needs to be rescued. So I, you know, clearly related to the lame guy in the passage, but I've, He's shown up in other passages before, you know, not this particular guy, but the lame guy. So I was like, okay, I've been there, done that. I got that one down. And then I just thought about the people of Lystra in general. And I thought, wow, that that does look a lot like me there too. They were people who didn't know the one true God. They worshipped everything but him and tried to find fulfillment and meaning in those things. When presented with the person and work of Christ, they denied their need for him. And they abused the messenger and continued to ignore God. That was me. That was me in a nutshell. But what I love about this passage is God sent people to Lystra. Knowing who they were, knowing what they were like, knowing what they were going to do, he didn't ignore them, even though they ignored him completely. He didn't ignore them back. In fact, Paul will actually go to Lystra again. Uh, he's going to go in and, and con, uh, connect up with a, with a young man named Timothy who he's going to take on his missionary journey and, and disciple into a pastor. And I'm just continually amazed at a God who would go to the trouble to save a person like me, to send people into a town like Lystra that has got it all wrong and all backwards and are just going to mar you know, the glory of God, and yet he still goes in and seeks after them and wants them. And I hope that's an encouragement to you today to think that that a God who could have ignored us, who could have just walked away from us in a lot of ways would have made total sense in my mind. I'm thinking, uh, yeah, that's what I would have done to somebody like you. But he didn't. And that's the beauty of what we see uh, set at the table for, for us today. This table is set for Christians as a reminder that Jesus loves you. And we know that he loved us because he went to the cross in our place. And he allowed what you should have gone through to be put on himself, even though he was the the sinless 
Son of God. And so as we remember what He's done, all of the cost was upon Him. It's free gift to us. I pray that you guys would just consider who Christ is, what He's done for you, and, and what that means for you now. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you can trust Him now. You can confess that He is Lord. and You can acknowledge that God raised Him from the dead. And you can be saved. And you can enjoy communion as well. So um, here, we uh, some of you are new. We just come up, we, we take it, and we go back. And we don't take it all together. We kind of um, just pray and take it as, as, as God leads you to do it. Enjoy a time of worship and remembering what He's done. This isn't meaningless. Right? This points us to something of great significance. So, so contemplate what it is that you're doing by remembering a God who loves you and who died for you. Father, we thank you so much for these accounts in the book of Acts that, that tell us about uh, what men are like and what you are like. Father, we know um, there's nothing we could ever do to merit salvation from you, but that it's completely a gift. We thank you that Jesus Christ is our righteousness and that, that it's in him alone that we can trust. And we thank you for the sacrifice that he paid by, by willing to go onto the cross so that his body would be broken in place of ours and that his blood would be shed instead of ours. And that by trusting in the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, we can have life with you. Lord, I pray that that would sink in to each one of us this morning and realize that um, you could have left this town in the dust, but you didn't. Thank you so much for Jesus Christ. Thank you for all that you're doing. Pray, Lord, is that as the other church services wrap up too, that there are people there um, that understand who Jesus is and what he's done for them. We ask it in his name. Amen.